This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. The U.S. prison camp at Guantanamo Bay has been back in the news this week with a guilty plea from Australian David Hicks, who signed a plea agreement with the U.S. government for materially supporting terrorism. He was the first to be tried by new military tribunals created by Congress after the Supreme Court struck down an earlier version that President Bush authorized. It's also been in the news with the planned release of British resident Bishir al-Rawi. And last but not least, U.S. Defense Secretary Robert Gates made news about Guantanamo by saying that the U.S. should look for ways to shut it down. Since the camp opened in its current incarnation in 2002, it's been sporadically the subject of news stories that focused mainly on the possibility of mistreatment and illegal detention of those being held there. It's become something of a symbol in the minds of many for U.S. excesses in the war on terror— And for many of us, it's become part of the news buzz that we barely hear unless something really spectacular happens. For people like Martha Rayner, however, that is not the case. That's because she, along with other lawyers and law students across the country, is involved with Guantanamo on a daily basis. Rayner's an associate clinical professor of law at Fordham, and she's the director of the law school's International Justice Clinic. They're working as advocates for several Guantanamo detainees. Rainer's my guest today on Fordham Conversations. She joined me earlier this week in the studio, where we talked about her work with Guantanamo detainees and went over some of the basics of Guantanamo, what I've been calling Guantanamo 101, that may have become fuzzy in many of our minds over the last few years. Well, Martha Rainer, welcome. Thank you. So tell me about this project. Well, I teach the International Justice Clinic at Fordham University School of Law, The clinic officially started last semester in the fall of 2006, but we began the work over a year ago. I took on the representation of five men who were held at Guantanamo Bay Naval Station. I took on this work in a response to a call for volunteer lawyers by the Center for Constitutional Rights. The center, which is known as CCR, entered this work very early on when the first men were brought to Guantanamo in January of 2002. CCR recognized that this was problematic and violated the basics of the rule of law in our own country as well as international law. And they got started right away filing petitions on behalf of some of the men detained at Guantanamo. They eventually looked to volunteer lawyers to take on the cases of what ended up to be hundreds of men detained there. So you and a number of students are doing this? Yes, I teach the clinic with my colleague, Ramsey Kassam, and we have nine students who work with us. They take a seminar that accompanies what we call the field work, which is the actual representation of our clients. Tell me as much as you can about who you're representing. We originally rep- represented five men. One of our clients has actually been released. Um, he was transferred to Saudi Arabia, and the Saudi government subsequently released him from their custody. The four clients we have who remain at Guantanamo, we represent two young men from Saudi Arabia and two men from Yemen. One of our clients from Yemen is a very young man. He's about 24 years old. He actually uh, came into U.S. custody when he was 18 years old. He's been at Guantanamo really since the camps first opened, so it's been well over five years. He actually has a particularly troubling situation because the U.S. military has actually approved him to be released from Guantanamo. And that happened well over a year ago, yet he continues to languish in Guantanamo. 
The reasons for that are very difficult for me to fathom, but the government's position is that they don't know where to send him. Now, in May of last year of 2006, the government, the U.S. military, attempted to transfer him to Saudi Arabia. The Saudis said, uh, we're not taking him. He is not a citizen or a resident of our country. The reason why the U.S. thought he was a citizen of Saudi Arabia is because he was born in Saudi Arabia and because we in the United States determine nationality by place of birth, the U.S. military assumed that that's how things are done in the Gulf states. Well, that's not how things are done in the Gulf state. Where you're born does not necessarily determine your citizenship. So my client was born in Saudi Arabia, but he was born to Yemeni parents. And under the laws and custom of both Yemen and Saudi Arabia, he is a Yemeni national. My students and I have have attempted to try to correct this situation, but we've been stonewalled by the U.S. government, who claims that this is none of our business and that they uh, anything regarding transfers is a diplomatic issue, and they don't want to allow the lawyers to be involved. As I said, it's particularly troubling because this young man has been languishing for many years, and apparently the U.S. doesn't even want him, but can't seem to determine where to send him. It's And as I said, it's quite clear where to send him to Yemen. The primary thing that you and other lawyers have been working on in Guantanamo is getting people habeas corpus hearings. Is that correct? Yes. I have to say that I, and I don't think that I'm entirely alone in this, I'm not entirely clear on what habeas corpus is and also how it compares with what the government's been offering, which is something called CSRT. Can you explain all this to me? Sure. Um, I think the best way to conceive of habeas corpus is as sort of the original human right. It dates way back to the 12th century in England. And it's in its most simplistic form, it's the right to go to a neutral court when the executive, the king, the president, right, has taken away your freedom. The idea being that you can challenge the power of the executive to lock you up without reason, without justification, in violation of law. The the lawyers seek that right on behalf of their clients. We seek the right of the U.S. courts to review the legality of the imprisonment of these men. The Bush administration's position is that those men do not have that right for two reasons. One is because they're not held on U.S. territory, and two is because they're foreign nationals. And our position is that they are held by U.S. forces. There's no doubt about that. We are exerting our power. It is the power of the executive, and that that power should have a check on it, and that check should be in the form of a neutral tribunal, our own court system. Now, the CSRTs, the Combat Status Review Tribunals, is a happening. I don't even want to call it a process or a system because I think it gives too much credit to it. But it's an event that the U.S. military devised in response to the Supreme Court's reaction to these men being held without charges. The problems with the CSRT is that there is no lawyer present. The Men are not allowed to look at the evidence against them. 
the men are not allowed to bring in their own evidence or call witnesses or cross-examine any witnesses against them. And the decision makers are part of the military. So it's the jailer essentially judging the jailer. And also, these men had already been determined by the military to be what they call enemy combatants. It had already been determined that they had justification to hold these men. So the CSRT was really just going through the motions of rubber stamping what had already been decided. There is another aspect to it as well that I was surprised about, which is that the um, the representatives for the men aren't lawyers and aren't necessarily advocates for them. That's correct. There, there are no lawyers involved in the CSRT. The military has created a position called a personal representative. That's a misnomer because it leads one to believe that perhaps that person represents the interests of the detainee. But that's simply not correct. That person essentially acts as a go-between the man who's coming before the CSRT and the officers, the military officers who actually sit on this so-called tribunal. Really, that person simply acts as a liaison between those two entities. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Today on the show, we're talking with Martha Rayner about the U.S. detention camp at Guantanamo Bay. Rayner's an associate clinical professor of law at Fordham, and she's the director of the law school's International Justice Clinic. They're working as legal advocates for several Guantanamo detainees. Now, what are the legal justifications for the way that things are being handled in Guantanamo if they're not being handled in the way that they normally would? Well, the, the Bush administration has some arguments, but I think the, I think the way you need to think about this is that what's being done in Guantanamo, and it, I mean, obviously Guantanamo has become symbolic of the bigger issue of incarcerating men across the world sometimes secretly, right, subjecting them to torture and not giving them any due process. I mean, I say that's what Guantanamo symbolizes. That activity, that conduct is justified by the Bush administration because they say this is a time of war. And in war, the executive is allowed to do extraordinary things. The problem is, is that once the Bush administration says that there's a war on terror, their position is that it justifies them using this extraordinary power. Well, yes, we did have a war in Afghanistan. We invaded Afghanistan with our military. And yes, men were taken prisoner in the midst of war. And in the midst of a war, it is justified to hold men until the end of those hostilities. And because you're in the midst of a war, the Geneva Conventions, which governs this kind of activity, says that it's permissible to hold people without due process. In other words, there's not an expectation that you can have a full-blown trial in the midst of a battle zone, right? But that's not what we're talking about here. The war in Afghanistan has died down considerably. In fact, within months of the invasion of Afghanistan, the U.S. claimed victory there. And a new government was put into power. And what's going on in Afghanistan now is better described as an insurgency. The war on terror is global, and it's a metaphorical term. It shouldn't be used to justify the continuation of these extraordinary powers, that is, 
detaining someone without charges, without due process indefinitely. It's time, it, I mean, I would argue it was time many years ago to step away from the talk of war and to return to the rule of law that exists outside of war. You mentioned the Geneva Convention. Um, can you talk for just a moment about sort of what the Geneva Convention is, what it's intended to do insofar as you understand it, and how it's being used by the administration? The Geneva Conventions are a treaty, and they've been signed by numerous states in our world. The conventions were developed because there's, there was an acknowledgement that in time of war, people are going to be taken captive. And the conventions seek to set down rules as to how those people should be treated during time of war. The problem that the United States got into in Afghanistan is that very early on, the Bush administration said that the Geneva Conventions do not apply. Now, that is a very, very troubling proposition. The Geneva Conventions apply when there is armed conflict of an international character. There's no question that when we invaded Afghanistan, there was armed conflict. It was most certainly international. We were one state, the United States. We invaded another state, Afghanistan. Afghanistan is what is called a high contracting party to the Geneva Conventions. They signed on to the conventions just like the United States signed on to the conventions. Now, the Bush administration claimed that Afghanistan was a failed state at that point, and therefore the conventions did not apply. Scholars almost across the board have vehemently disagreed with that. Um, that simply was an effort to duck the requirements of the Geneva Convention. So when we went to war in Afghanistan and our president made the decision not to apply the Geneva Conventions, the standards that apply to people taking, taken into detention during armed conflict fell apart. And that led to the severe, and I want to emphasize severe, abuses that followed. Now the Bush administration has been forced by the Supreme Court, and this is a case that happened in the summer of 2006 called Hamdan, in that case, the Supreme Court said that Geneva Conventions absolutely apply. And now the Bush administration has been forced to apply them. And now, of course, the Bush administration has turned them around to say, okay, okay, now we're going to consider these men as falling under the Geneva Convention. And Geneva allows us to hold these men until the cessation of hostilities, until the war is over. And Geneva allows us to do that without applying any due process. I think the... Um, What's very interesting is, is what happened in the news yesterday, that's Monday the 26th, in regards to the Australian David Hicks, who's been held at Guantanamo for over five years. He is the only man that has been fully charged under this new system that the Bush administration developed pursuant to new legislation that happened last fall of 2006. David Hicks was scheduled to appear in court yesterday, and he chose to plead guilty to materially aiding a terrorist organization. David Hicks is a very lucky man. My clients would love to be in his shoes. My clients would love to be charged with something to understand what it is, 
what war crime our country claims they committed to charge them, to give them a fair trial, and to punish them if that's appropriate. That's what's going to happen to David Hicks. There are just under 400 men at Guantanamo, and he is the only one in over five years who has been charged. Who, on the whole, are the detainees at Guantanamo? It's fascinating. They are men from all over the world, literally. There are approximately 800 men that have passed through Guantanamo. Just under 400 remain. There was originally many men there from Europe. They've since been released because their home countries advocated on their behalf. Their home countries had more power vis-a-vis our government to push for their release. The men that remain there now, there's many men from Saudi Arabia, many men from Yemen. There's many men from Afghanistan, although that number is, is diminishing. There's men from Algeria, from Palestine, from, I mean, uh, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. There's a group of Chinese nationals called Uyghurs. They're people that are actually oppressed by the Chinese government. They actually came to Afghanistan seeking refuge from their own oppressive government and got caught up in the events post 9-11 and were seen as enemies of the United States simply because they were foreign nationals in Afghanistan. On what basis are all these people being held, and what's the evidence against them? With my four clients, for three of them, the government has not released any information to me about the allegations against them. I've been able to obtain a few documents that state some allegations, but that's only because the Associated Press sued the United States under under the Freedom of Information Law seeking disclosure of some of these allegations against the men. But the government itself won't release the full extent of the allegation, never mind the evidence against my client. But the allegations that I do have, they're typically, um, well, for example, the young man from Yemen who I mentioned before, who has actually been cleared for release but unfortunately still remains, he traveled to Afghanistan before 9-11, And he traveled with the purpose of joining the Taliban. Before the U.S. invaded Afghanistan, there were a certain number of men who went to Afghanistan intending to fight with the the Taliban. But to fight with the Taliban in the civil war that was ongoing with the Northern Alliance at the time of 9-11. For most of the men that went to Afghanistan, it had nothing whatsoever to do with the United States. They were answering a call for help from the Taliban in their civil war against the Northern Alliance. That was an internal issue. Were they fundamentalist Muslims? Yes. But they had no intention of fighting the United States, never mind any intention of supporting Osama bin Laden or any of his al-Qaeda network. When the U.S. invaded October of 2006, those men suddenly were caught in an international war that they never had any desire or intention to be involved in. And for most of them, they retreated very quickly. For example, my client from Yemen, he never fought the Northern Alliance after the U.S. invasion. He never fought any U.S. forces nor any coalition partners. He fled immediately um, because, again, his goal had never been to fight the United States. Yet, He was taken into custody by Pakistanis 
who were typically given money, bounties, for turning over Arabs to the U.S. military. And he was labeled an enemy of the United States, but he never was. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I had this morning on Cityscape a conversation with the author of the new book Dry Manhattan about the city during the Prohibition years. That's Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. My guest today on Fordham Conversations is Martha Rayner. Rayner's an associate clinical professor of law at Fordham. She's part of a group that's working as legal advocates for Guantanamo detainees. I asked Rayner if there were legal complications stemming from the U.S. decision to detain so many people at Guantanamo for such a long time. Before employing a particular policy, right, you hope that our government thinks through, right, what's the goals they seek to achieve and will this policy achieve them and what will be the costs of that policy, right? It's quite clear that a very primary focus of this policy of secret detentions and indefinite detention without due process had to do with acquiring intelligence. The Bush administration wanted to be allowed to question these men using what they call alternative interrogation techniques, which amount to torture. And in order to do that, they had to bypass Geneva because Geneva doesn't allow that. And they had to bypass our own domestic laws because our domestic laws don't allow that. And they had to bypass other um, international law because human rights laws don't allow that either. What's ended up happening, though, is now there are men at Guantanamo who are genuinely our enemies. Whether or not we'll ever be able to bring them to trial is a big question because the evidence is so tainted now by the abuses that have been employed by our government, that now I believe we're at risk of not being able to try these men and punish them accordingly. Now, you recently returned from Guantanamo. You were there, what, last week? Yes. What were you doing there? And also, what's it like there? I was there to see my clients. The one thing that the lawyers have won from the U.S. federal court is the right to go to Guantanamo and visit our clients. The U.S. government contested that for a very long time. Guantanamo is a very strange place. It is a military base. It has been beefed up extremely since the arrival of the men that are being held indefinitely. And the entire base seems to revolve now around incarcerating those men. I've been there many times, but the first time I went was a little, a bit over a year ago, and it had a much more temporary feeling to it. The actual camps were almost like uh, shacks. There was a sort of a, a temporary feeling to it. But in just the course of this year, the military has opened two new permanent prison facilities. One of them is modeled on what we call super maximum prisons here in the United States. And it's obviously a very troubling development because it definitely signals that at least this administration's plan is to hold these men on a very long-term basis. The Bush administration intended to spend billions of dollars building a permanent judicial facility to hold these military war crimes. But apparently our Secretary of Defense, Robert Gates, nixed that plan, so that facility hasn't been built. But it is a huge operation down there. And again, you know, we're talking just under 400 men. 
there's an awful lot of resources that are going into incarcerating them. What are the the main problems that you're running up against in this representation? It's tremendously difficult representation. There are so many obstacles to forming um, a productive attorney-client relationship with one's client because of the distance between us, the difficulty of getting to Guantanamo, the cost involved, never mind the issues around different languages, different cultures, different religions, gender issues. And I think all of that can be overcome, but it does take time. And that's something that's very precious and that we don't have a lot of. So there's that issue. You know, the men at Guantanamo have been through so much, and I think it's very difficult for them, for some of them, to trust their lawyers, to understand that this American is there to represent their interest, advocate for their interests. Also because for the men that are Guantanamo, they've been there so long and they've seen no change. We have seen change through the court cases, but it has been incredibly slow. Um, And it hasn't meant a whole bunch for our clients. They still continue to languish, cut off from the world, virtually cut off from their families. They're allowed mail, but it's heavily censored by the military. So it's 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 extremely difficult for them. And now with the opening of this new prison, all the men are in isolation. They're in cells without any natural light for 22 hours a day. They're only taken outside for two hours a day. And even then, they're in cages. So that the, the conditions of confinement have become even more oppressive. How has Guantanamo come to exist in its current form? Well, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, these men were taken into U.S. to custody. You know, the the bulk of them were taken into custody, you know, in Pakistan soon after the invasion of Afghanistan. But many of them were taken into custody all over the world. And when the Bush administration contemplated where to hold them, they immediately, I suppose, decided they were going to hold these men on, in the long term. And when they thought about where to hold them, they thought of Guantanamo because they believed it would be out of reach of the U.S. courts. Back in the early 90s, when Haitians were fleeing Haiti and Haitians were being intercepted on the high seas, they were held at Guantanamo. And there was lawyers that represented those Haitian detainees, refugees, and they litigated the issue of whether or not the federal courts had jurisdiction, had the power to decide what went on in Guantanamo Naval Station. Ironically, actually, a federal judge found that he did have jurisdiction to determine what happened there. But because of historical events, that case decision had was subsequently withdrawn and was not a precedent that the Bush administration was aware of or, or, or realized. So they believed that by bringing these men to Guantanamo, they wouldn't be subject to our domestic law, our constitution, or our federal courts. They purposely brought them there to put them outside the law. Now, after 2008, George W. Bush's administration will no longer be in power. What's going to happen to Guantanamo at that point? What's going to happen to the way that we're handling this, do you think? Well, I think obviously that that has a lot to do with who wins the election. But yes, do I, I think there will be changes. You know, Guantanamo is clearly, it's an executive issue. It's a, it's a political issue at this point. And it will be 
partially solved through whoever takes on the executive position and whatever Congress looks at it looks like at that time. I guess I, I am ever the optimist, and I I believe that whether it's a Republican or a Democrat who takes over the White House in 2008, I think they will work to close Guantanamo. President Bush has said he wishes to close Guantanamo, but he is simply not taking the steps to achieve that. But I do believe the next president will close it. I think there is growing sentiment that it is a liability in a big way for our country. It has come to be seen as the symbol of all the missteps and abuses that our country has committed post 9-11. And I believe that also this is due not only to domestic political pressure that's growing, but also international political pressure is growing. And I think that the combination of that will lead to the closing of Guantanamo. That's not to say that all those men will be released. I believe, I mean, my hope is that the people that have committed war crimes, who we have evidence that, that can be holed up in a court of law, that they'll be transferred to the United States, they'll be charged with crimes, and they'll be given fair trials and punished if that's appropriate. And for the men who have not committed a crime, they should be released to their home countries. Well, Martha Rayner, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Nora. I appreciate it. That was Martha Rayner. She's an associate clinical professor of law at Fordham, and she's the director of the law school's International Justice Clinic. They're working as legal advocates for several Guantanamo detainees. If you missed part of this conversation, or if you'd like to hear it again, Fordham Conversations is now being podcast. If you're interested in subscribing, or if you're just looking for more information, click on podcast on our homepage, wfuv.org. Listen to us in the archives, too. That's also at our website. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.